Welcome to Go West Young Podcast, the show where parks, politics, and policy collide. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. In just a minute, the Trump administration puts the California desert in the crosshairs. We'll find out what's at stake as the Interior Department gets ready to blow up a plan that protected millions of acres of desert and cleared the way for America's energy future. Plus, it's been 150 years since Wyoming became the first U.S. territory to let women vote, and it's been 148 years since that right was nearly taken away. It's a story that is far messier than you might realize this week in Western history. First, let's check in on the news. The Interior Department's Inspector General just released a pair of reports on political antics at the department. First off, the IG found that an assistant secretary, Doug Dominich, broke ethics rules when he repeatedly met with his former employer, the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Dominich opened doors for the foundation, which was trying to roll back endangered species protections. Before he joined the Trump administration, Dominich ran the, quote, Fueling Freedom Project at that foundation, which set out to explain, and this is a direct quote here, the forgotten moral case for fossil fuels by arguing that increasing oil and gas production helps poor people. After Dominic went to Interior, he brought folks from the Foundation in for those meetings about endangered species. That is a clear violation of federal ethics rules. And then Dominic emailed them afterwards, telling them to, quote, keep fighting. The Interior IG also confirmed the facts from a big New York Times investigation earlier this year into Interior Secretary David Bernhardt, who intervened right before Fish and Wildlife Service scientists were set to release an analysis that found that the continued use of two pesticides would put more than 1,200 plant and animal species at risk. Bernhardt blocked the release of that report and sent the scientists back to the drawing board to use different criteria for evaluating the pesticides. That is exactly what pesticide companies and farmers wanted to have happen. Now, the inspector general confirmed all of that and then concluded that Bernhardt did nothing wrong because he is not directly connected to any of those pesticide companies. In other words, it's fine to interfere with government scientists as long as that doesn't violate your ethics pledge, even if you have spent an entire career in the private sector trying to undermine endangered species protections. I don't know what else to say here other than to send you back to that Times piece from last March and let you read it all with the new perspective that the top watchdog at the department confirmed all of it happened and concluded it was just fine. Finally, speaking of investigations, the Government Accountability Office is looking into Bernhardt's attempt to force Bureau of Land Management staff out of Washington, D.C. This Thursday is the deadline for those relocated employees to tell the agency if they're going to accept the move. But if they say they're going to move, that then buys them another 90 days to find a new job in D.C. So we realistically won't know how many of them actually move until next March. E&E News reports that very, very few of them are going to make that move to the new BLM headquarters in Grand Junction, Colorado, like possibly zero. The GAO is going to review all of this and find out if it's been planned and organized properly and if it's going to deliver any of the cost savings that Bernhardt's people have claimed. But so far, they haven't presented any documentation to back it up. Our guest this week is Kim Delfino, the California Program Director with Defenders of Wildlife. 
Kim has spent nearly 20 years at Defenders working on everything from the Salton Sea to conservation on California's agriculture and ranch lands. But we asked her here to talk about the California desert and renewable energy because a compromise that took years to hammer out is on the brink of being blown up by the Trump administration. Kim Delfino, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So from Death Valley to Joshua Tree, the the California desert is such a special place, and there has been a decades-long effort to conserve what is one of the largest intact landscapes in the lower 48. Can you give us a a top-down view of what those efforts have been and what it looks like on the ground right now before we even get into renewable energy in the desert? Well, uh, just more than 25 years ago, actually on October 31st in 1994, President Bill Clinton signed the California Desert Protection Act into law. And um, that protected 9.2 million acres of public land down in the California desert, supporting our nation's wildlife. Um, It goes from the northern end of Death Valley all the way to the U.S.-Mexico border. And in fact, the California desert is one of the most intact uh, landscapes left um, in the lower 48 states. Since that uh, 25-year-ago act passing, Um, numerous conservation organizations, tribal entities, local communities, recreational um, interests, et cetera, have worked very hard to protect this very unique and important landscape, um, which is home to desert tortoise, Mojave ground squirrel, bighorn sheep, golden eagle, and um, many, many different and unique plant species like the iconic Joshua tree. Um, And uh, moving forward, uh, there has been a lot of effort to put uh, millions of acres of land um, into permanent conservation. Um, And the most recent um, effort has been in the form of, um, in 2016, an update to the the Bureau of Land Management's management plans out there called the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation uh, Plan. So... There's been a lot of work. It's ongoing. All right. So, so that brings us to the, the acronym DUJOR, D-R-E-C-P, Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan. Start with the basics of, of that plan. What is it? What does it cover? And why was that such a big deal for that to come about uh, in 2016? So I think maybe as some people are aware, um, California has very um, rigorous uh, goals to achieve a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. So we're working very hard to on-ramp a rigorous clean energy uh, program, which would include um, producing a lot of new renewable energy to power California. But to do that, we would need to cite renewable energy projects like solar and wind. And about uh, 15 years ago, we started to see a lot of projects happening on public land down in the California desert where it's very sunny uh, and windy at times. Um, But unfortunately, they were being put in um, areas that were very fragile and intact and just, frankly, the wrong places. Um, The California desert, both public and private lands, span almost 23 million acres. So we have a lot of space out there to do this right. But what we didn't have was a good plan for directing these types of projects into the best locations while also protecting all the really important values um, associated with recreation and wildlife conservation and the other interests that are out there. 
So in 2008, the federal government and the state of California embarked on the creation of the Denner, D- D- uh, I'm sorry, Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan, the DRECP. Um, and we spent almost 10 years, uh, well, eight years, um, where um, working um, across the landscape um, focused on the Bureau of Land Management lands, which is 10 uh, million acres of land to identify areas that should be set aside for protection and conservation, areas that should be available for recreation, and then areas that would be available for renewable energy development and transmission. And, uh, you know, it was um, hundreds of meetings, um, many hours and efforts of close collaboration among a wide variety of people, tens of thousands of public comments. um, And we actually ended up achieving what is sometimes very difficult to do in this world, which is a compromise that everyone agreed on. Um, And the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan was finalized and signed by Secretary Sally Jewell um, uh, on September 14, 2016. And even more surprisingly, no one filed a lawsuit challenging it. So it was one of those rare moments where we could achieve a balance where the conservation community, the energy community, recreationalists, and everyone else out there that care about the desert, for whatever reason, they um, they were willing to live with what was agreed upon. And what ended up happening is we created a designation of 4.2 million acres of new conservation area, 3.6 million acres of area for recreation, like hiking and camping and off-road vehicle use, and then almost 400,000 acres of what we call development focus area, where the renewable energy companies could go and build their uh, projects to help power, you know, California's clean energy economy. Give us a sense then of what makes the different areas suitable for, for different things. What, what makes uh, one of these energy priority areas both appropriate for development and, and is something clearly that must have made the, the energy companies happy? Because as you mentioned no one sued, which these days is something you just never hear about, uh, an actual agreement that gets everyone to a place where they're happy with the outcome. What, 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 what are the characteristics of different parts of land in, in these cases? So um, for, for renewable energy development, ideally, they, uh, the companies are looking for essentially pretty flat land, um, particularly for solar that is close to roads and close to transmission so that they can, the electrons that they're generating can get on those lines and get to the people that are using them. Um, So we, you know, it was a massive planning effort where we looked across the whole desert and we looked at areas that have high conservation value, um, areas that have high, uh, that have high uh, cultural resource value and high recreation value. And we sort of said, you know what, Let's take those areas off the table. Let's look at areas that are left that have that sort of flatness and closeness to roads and transmission. You know, what, what's left on the table? And like I said, you know, we're talking about 10 million acres. This is a large area. And we were able to identify these development focus areas, like 400,000, almost 400,000 acres of land. Big chunk which of is land. By a, just to put it in context, um, it was way more land than what the California Energy Commission said was necessary um, in order to meet uh, California's goals of 40, uh, 50% renewable energy generation by 2040. 
um, because we wanted to have a large enough area where the projects could sort of move around and figure out where the best places are to go. Um, but yeah, that 400,000 acres is area that the companies would be able to go into, file an application, and have essentially kind of a checklist. And so it's easier permitting for them as well. And so that they can then get these projects moving faster. All right. So that gets us through 2016. Then we get into the Trump administration. What happened and what do we think is about to happen? So shortly after the new federal administration came in, the Trump administration came in, they started looking at all of the various public lands uh, plans that had been put in place in the previous administration and started to unwind them. Um, and, you know, we've seen it in, in uh, other parts of the, of the uh, West in terms of undermining and unwinding the sage-grouse plans, um, you know, looking at national monument designations and rolling that back. And soon enough, uh, the eye turned to the California desert. And despite the fact that, again, not a single lawsuit had been filed, um, the Department of Interior decided they were going to take another look um, at this plan because perhaps maybe too much conservation had been put on the ground and they wanted to see if there's an opportunity to reopen the plan and uh, remove land from conservation and put more land into development. And frankly, not, not just renewable energy development, they're looking at mining and other types of development as well. And so uh, on uh, February 2nd uh, in 2018, less than 18 months after the plan was finalized, the federal government published a, what they call a notice in the federal register telling the public that, hey, we plan on reopening the DRECP in its entirety by proposing amendments to the plan and um, we want to hear from you about, you know, what we should do. Interestingly, uh, the vast, the overwhelming response back was don't change it. We spent almost a decade getting this agreement in place. Please don't change it. But we expect that uh, shortly, either at the end of this year or early next year, we are actually going to get a draft plan change out of the federal government that will largely undo the carefully crafted compromise that we all came up with. And by largely undo, that is to say back to everything's fair game for development, be, be it renewable or mining or, or what have you just. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, um, it could, well, we don't, we haven't seen the actual thing and it's sure. not like the Trump administration has us on speed dial to tell us yeah, what they're, they're up they're, to. They're not sending you advanced copies. Uh, no, no. Um, but uh, they are, what we do expect is that uh, lands that have been identified for permanent conservation and for conservation for uh, wildlife like tortoise, golden eagle, et cetera, um, are going to be opened up um, to renewable energy and other types of development. Um and uh, and so and the areas potentially that have been identified for recreation will be opened up to more development. So all of the all of the, so that so that it will completely shift the balance. So whereas before the balance was like we can actually manage to juggle all these values and satisfy everyone and it'll just completely shift it over to we actually don't really care about addressing conservation, recreation, et cetera. We're really all about just putting a big for sale sign up on the public lands for any type of development that's out there. So I, I, I guess my next question is one that you may not be able to 
answer, but I'll, I'll guess I'll ask you to speculate anyway, maybe based on the few comments that did come in asking them to unroll this, which is why? Why go about blowing up a plan that no one even bothered to sue over? What's the impetus here? Are there, are there specific interests that may have had the administration's ear, or is it they just set out to undo anything that looked like conservation? Well, I definitely think a lot of it is the latter, which is I think that there is a fundamental disagreement or policy disagreement with this current administration that public lands are to be um, balanced with um, conservation, that, you know, it's not just that the public lands are open for business um, for development, but that the which is, I think, what they believe but that we should be balancing it all the multi, the various uses like conservation and recreation and cultural resources. So I think that there's definitely a fundamental philosophical difference of how ma- public land should be managed. Um, and then I think that there were, you know, there probably were some uh, companies that were seeing an opportunity here to, to reopen. Um, I wouldn't say it was across the whole renewable energy spectrum. I think maybe some renewable energy companies were pushing this mining companies saw an opportunity. But again, I I really think that um, the real driver here was a philosophical difference on how our public land should be managed. In terms of mining, what are the potential resources that they'd be looking to to get at here? Um, There's uh, the the spectrum. I mean, there's potentially there could be more gold mining. Um, There's um, searching around for uh, lithium, um, rare Hmm. precious metals. Um, so, but again, the funny thing is, is that, um, there are areas still available for that type of development activity. Um, you know, so it's not like mining ended when the DRECP plan amendment was put in place. Um, it just was simply saying like, you know, there's a lot of my area to be mined, but Hey, we also need to protect areas for conservation, recreation, and, um, cultural values. And, and I presume any existing mining claims weren't invalidated as part of this because that's generally very difficult to do, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. So that's a very good point. The current, the DRE, then when the DRECP was put into place, existing mining claims remain valid. All right. So what happens if the administration moves ahead with this? We see a draft in December or January, and then presumably a final rule at some point prior to January 2021. What happens after that? What happens after January 2021? Well, uh, what happens after a final after a, after a final rule is published? Is it just lawsuits everywhere you can see? Yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, uh, I think what'll happen is is that uh, certainly the various interests, like the conservation community, which I'm a part of, would be challenging that decision. Um, it's very possible the state of California. I mean, I, I didn't really mention this in, in the discussion, but a, 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 when the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan was being developed, it was developed in partnership, equal partnership with the state of California, particularly the California Energy Commission and the Department of Fish and Wildlife and our State Lands Commission, because there's state lands that are checkerboarded across this area. And so California really put a lot of money and time into producing this plan. And I think they have a lot invested in the DRECP succeeding. And so um, I know they are not, the state of California is not going to be very happy to see this undone. 
And we've seen a willingness from the attorney general, Javier Becerra, to sue over all sorts of things. So this would, I presume, be up his alley as well again? Yep, I think it would be the attorney general up his alley. Uh, uh, I also think the governor of California is not going to be too happy about Mm -hmm. it either. Uh, And the congressional delegation, uh, Dianne Feinstein has been a champion of the the California desert. Obviously, she was instrumental in getting the Desert Protection Act passed 25 years ago. Uh, Would they also, I presume, be not so happy with with changes coming down the pipe from the administration? Certainly, yes. Senator Feinstein has been a longtime defender of the California desert. I expect her to continue to be a longtime defender of the California desert. Senator Harris is also... Uh, you know, uh, certainly supportive of the DRECP. So I don't believe that the California delegation is going to be very happy to see this uh, changed either. This presumably lands on the plate of William Perry Pendley, the acting BLM director or guy who is performing the duties of the BLM director because they can't have technically an acting BLM director because of the Vacancies Reform Act. Any sense of where Pendley is on this? Has anyone asked him as far as you know? Has he given any indication uh, where he's going to stand on this? You know, I don't actually I don't know the answer to that question. Um, Certainly the indication in looking at sort of how things have been rolling out. um, I'm not I'm not overly optimistic there. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly, I would think that, you know, if they're planning on issuing a plan that will undo the, the balance, I think that says a lot right there. Um, sure. and as opposed to just not moving forward. They don't have to move forward with the plan amendment. They could let the right. They could do nothing stand. at all. Right. They, they could exactly. just say we looked at it and we're not going to do anything because everyone was pretty darn happy the first time around. Right. That's Correct. still an option for them that they could say, never mind. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's ask about a, a few other California desert issues since I've got you here. I want to start with Cadiz, which is the proposed water pipeline that would essentially drain the Mojave Desert to pipe water to uh, Southern California. What is going on with that fight? We haven't touched on that here on this podcast in in several months. Well, the great news is that uh, Governor Gavin Newsom signed legislation um, several months ago, uh, which is a bill called Senate Bill 307, uh, carried by um, Senator Richard Roth. Uh, whose area um, encompassed the Cadiz Valley. Um, Senator, so this bill um, would require that the state of California, particularly the Department of Fish and Wildlife, in conjunction with our State Lands Commission and our Department of Water Resource, to take a look at the Cadiz project. And if they found that that project would have an adverse effect on desert wildlife or cultural resources, then that project would not be able to move forward. And the point of that bill was that essentially the state of California was stepping into the gap left by the federal government when um, the Secretary of Interior, um, David Bernhardt, who at the time before coming to Interior was a lobbyist for the Cadiz Corporation, uh, withdrew what they call a a solicitor's opinion, an attorney memo that would have required the project to go through what we call uh, NEPA analysis, National Environmental Policy Act analysis, in which you look at all the various impacts of of a proposed project. So Secretary uh, Bernhardt said, no, they don't have to go through that. And so the state of California decided, well, wait a second. No, that's not okay. You know, this is a very fragile area. This is an ancient desert aquifer. It feeds these really important springs that surround the area. 
that are important for desert bighorn sheep. And you know what? We're going to step in and have do that environmental analysis since the federal government decided to abdicate that role. And so and the, Bill passed would the state, and, would the state in this case then have the authority to essentially block the entire project based on that environmental review? Or yes. does that set up another fight with the feds? Yeah. Well, so the the project um, has to not only um, because even though the project has to get um, permission by the Bureau of Land Management to build a pipeline, uh, the project also has to get state permits in order to be able to move forward. So fortunately for us, the project wasn't dependent only on federal approval. We had the state, uh, the state is there as the backup. And so the state has decided that because the federal government wasn't going to do that kind of environmental review, they were going to do it and they wouldn't be moving forward with their permitting if this project fails to meet the standard of no adverse impact. Makes sense. So let me talk then before we let you go about this area writ large and why you mentioned at the top, why the, the California desert is so spectacular covers a lot of different landscapes in a lot of ways between Joshua tree and, and death Valley. And we've, we haven't talked yet about these really spectacular national monuments in the area. We saw the administration target sand to snow and Mojave trails in the national monuments review early on. And, and so far they haven't tried to shrink them like they did bears ears and grand staircase. But how are these national monuments in the area, both helping wildlife and what do they do for surrounding communities and the economy of the California desert, which is obviously very different from California's coastal economy. Right. So um, a lot of people, you know, when they drive through the desert, they they feel like this is a kind of an empty landscape. But the reality is, is this is a really thriving landscape. I mean, the plants, the animals, the birds, you know, it's a really interesting and biologically unique area. It's also an area that supports a thriving recreational economy and as you mentioned, we are very blessed. We have um, these new monuments. We have the Castle Mountain Monument. We have Sand to Snow. And we have um, the Mojave Trails Monument. Um, these are really incredible places where people can go to, uh, to uh, hike, to, um, you know, um, do dark sky. I mean, some of the best dark sky stargazing around um, is in these areas. Um, rock climbing. So the the community, and then these are in addition to the fact that we have De- Death Valley National Park, we have Joshua, Joshua Tree National Park, we have the Mojave um, National Preserve. I mean, we're really lucky. We have this beautiful connection of all these really amazing, iconic landscapes spread throughout the whole desert. And these monuments were really important because they kind of connected up a lot of these landscapes. Um, so for animals that are moving through these areas with climate change and everything, it, it, it really is a very important conservation uh, landscape matrix of lands. But but the communities that are around here, they really depend on these areas because of the, the value f- from the tourist economy. It's a really thriving tourist economy in the California desert. A lot of people like going out there and it, uh, at all times of the year. And um, so they contribute, you know, billions of dollars. I can't remember the exact amount, um, but there have been some recent economic studies to show how much these protected landscapes really contribute to the bottom line of, you know, communities like Barstow 
or Joshua tree um, and um, Lone Pine. I mean, so, you know, there's these communities depend on these areas remaining intact and being protected and available for, you know, people from all over the world coming to enjoy these landscapes. If someone is either driving through or planning a trip out to the California desert, what's the one off the beaten path spot that you recommend they, they don't miss while they're hmm. in the California desert? That honestly, that is such a hard, <laughs> that's a really, I mean, that's, that's like a asking, trick question. It is. It's like asking someone to choose among their children. Um, I know. <laughs> well, it sort of depends on what you're interested. I mean, you know, you go to Death Valley and there's these just, you know, it's the lowest place on, um, on in California. You've got these crazy, it's either really hot or really cold. Um, you know, you go to the Cadiz Dunes. These are some of these mm. amazing tall dunes in the Cadiz Valley. And you climb to the very top of them, say, on like uh, on sunset. And you stand and you watch the sunset over the valley and, and you, these massive, giant, you know, multi-story dunes. I mean, I that's one of my favorite places. And actually, I'll, and I'll cheat. I'll tell you one more. You go to sure. Joshua Tree National Park. And there's an area, they call it the Choya Gardens. These are um, little cactuses that look a little like teddy bears, but do not touch them because they're not, they're, <laughs> they will stick you. You go there in the morning, like just as the sun is rising and the birds are coming up and the dew and uh, is coming, you know, on the Choyas. It's just, it's magical. These are magical places. Perfect. All right. Kim Delfino is the California program director at Defenders of Wildlife. Kim, thank you so much for your time and all of your insight today into what's going on with the DRECP. Sure. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell people about it. We like to wrap up with a look back at this week in Western history, a happy 76th birthday to former Senator and Secretary of State John Kerry, born at the Fitzsimmons Army Hospital in Aurora, Colorado, and a happy 62nd birthday to Donnie Osmond, born this week in Ogden, Utah, and speaking of Utah, it was this week in 1872 when Brigham Young married his 55th and final wife, the British-born author Hannah Tapfield King. He was 71, she was 65, and also married to a non-Mormon husband at the time. But the big anniversary this week, it is the sesquicentennial, that is 150 years, of women being granted the right to vote in a U.S. territory. Wyoming was the first— and like so many civil rights milestones in American history, the full story of how and why Wyoming was the first state to let women vote is messy and complicated and filled with more political trade-offs than altruism. The Wyoming Territory had just been established in the summer of 1868. That fall, Ulysses S. Grant, a Republican, was elected president, and he appointed Republicans to run the territory, led by Governor John Campbell. Campbell's attorney general quickly issued a legal opinion that said no one in Wyoming could be denied the right to vote based on their race. Now, keep in mind the 15th Amendment, which gave black men the right to vote nationwide, was still over a year away from being ratified. So Democrats in the Wyoming Territory saw the attorney general's opinion as a move to make sure black residents voted Republican. But in the territory's first election in the fall of 1869, only Democrats won. All 22 members of the territorial legislature were Democrats, as was the territory's delegate to Congress. So when the legislature first met, Democrats focused on women's rights, quickly passing laws guaranteeing equal pay for teachers and giving married women separate property rights from their husbands. 
The motivation here was probably more pragmatic than anything else. The Wyoming Territory had six men for every woman, and very few children, not counting Native Americans who were not included in the census. The Territory would never become a state without more white women living there. The railroad had come to Wyoming, but the gold mines were producing less and less. The Territory's future was uncertain. So, a state legislator named William Bright introduced a bill to let women vote. Besides growing the state's population, supporters made explicitly racist arguments in favor of the bill. The Cheyenne Leader newspaper reported the clincher argument came from an unnamed legislator who said, using terms that I will not repeat here, that if you're going to let black and Chinese men vote, we will ring in the women, too. The theory being that women would vote for the party that gave them the vote. And there was another political calculus at play as well. Many of the Democrats who voted for the bill assumed that the Republican governor would veto it because the idea was just too radical. The whole thing may have been an attempt, at least by some, to embarrass Governor Campbell. The bill passed the upper chamber of the legislature by a vote of six to two. In the House, some members tried to attach poison pill amendments, one of which would have extended the vote to black and Native American women. That amendment failed. The Wyoming House did raise the voting age for women from 18 to 21, though, and the final bill passed on a 7 to 4 vote. The governor took a few days to decide what to do, and on December 10, 1869, he signed it, and Wyoming became the first U.S. territory to give women the right to vote. It would be a full 50 years until the 19th Amendment was ratified, guaranteeing the same right across the country. Over the following year, Esther Hobart Morris was appointed Justice of the Peace, making her the first woman in America to hold public office. Women served on juries, and in September of 1890, around a thousand women in Wyoming went to the polls for the first time. And much to the surprise of the Democrats who gave them the vote, a whole lot of those women voted Republican. Wyoming sent a Republican to Congress, and the following year, a few Republicans won seats in the state legislature. So the legislature, which was still run by Democrats, decided the whole thing was a bad idea after all. In 1871, they introduced a bill repealing women's right to vote. The editor of the Cheyenne Leader argued for repeal in a front-page editorial, saying the Suffrage Act was, quote, repugnant to the wishes of the majority of refined and intelligent women of the land. Needless to say, that was a dude who wrote that. The repeal passed the legislature, but Governor Campbell vetoed it this week in 1871. His veto statement took up 10 pages in the official record, and the Wyoming Tribune reprinted it in full, concluding with a quote from the Declaration of Independence that a government derives all its just powers from the consent of the governed, including presumably governed white women. The governor did not sway the legislature. The territorial house came up with the two-thirds vote necessary to override the veto. And then, in the upper chamber of the legislature, the override fell one vote short of passing. One vote. That is how close women's suffrage came to being a two-year experiment in Wyoming. Even then, women ended up barred from serving on juries because it exposed them to unseemly testimony and put them in close quarters with male jurors. But the precedent was set. The Utah, Washington, and Montana territories also gave women the right to vote over the next 20 years. 
Congress took women's suffrage away from the Utah Territory in 1887 as part of a law that was aimed at reducing Mormon influence there. And when Wyoming was up for statehood in 1890, it looked like Congress was going to do the same. But the territorial delegate, Joseph Carey, sent a telegram to Congress saying, quote, We will stay out of the Union a hundred years rather than come in without our women. And so, on a close vote of 139 to 127, Wyoming became the first state to let women vote, setting the stage for a national fight toward women's suffrage over the next three decades. And that's the complicated legacy of Wyoming giving women the right to vote, which was signed this week and nearly repealed this week, 150 and 148 years ago in Western history. Well, you have made it to the end of another episode of Go West Young Podcast. Please keep those story and interview ideas coming. We are already starting to think about episodes for 2020. Drop us a line, podcast at westernpriorities.org, or find me on Twitter. I am A. Weiss. Thanks again to Kim Delfino from Defenders of Wildlife for bringing us up to speed on the California desert. We'll keep you posted on what happens there. I highly recommend signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Look West. If the Trump administration tries to undo the Desert Conservation and Renewable Energy Plan, I guarantee we will highlight it for you right away there. We've got a link to sign up for Look West in the show notes. I'm Aaron Weiss, and on behalf of the whole team here at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks for listening. We'll be right back.